Shut up and sit down. Hello, strangers, and welcome to Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of your co-hosts, Paul Anderson, here with the soon-to-be-married uh, Mr. Pete Wall. Pete, you've squeezed us in this week, which I'm very impressed, and the listeners should be impressed too. So, how are you? <laughs> Yo. Ah, oh, dude, I'm I'm sub-optimal <laughs> at the moment. Uh, I have... I, last night, I had, I think, the closest I've ever come to, like, a genuine, uh, not-just-saying-words panic attack where I started feeling like my breath shortened and like my body felt a bit weird. And uh, it wasn't a pleasant experience. And this is all brought on by the fact that, yeah, I, I keep getting the question. And I'm not I'm not casting aspersions here, Paul, but it is the question that you started our conversation with as well. Are you all set for Saturday, which is, of course, the day of my wedding? Um, yeah, and that, that question and the sort of surrounding questions just fill me with an agonising dread. But not about getting married, I hasten to add, because... I was going to say, yeah, I would hope not at this late stage, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the funny thing is, man, that like the one thing I'm really not nervous about is getting married to Francesca. Like that to me is is just a, a absolute pleasure. It's all of the administrative stuff around that that is uh, is not really in my wheelhouse. But I'm having to adapt to uh, these days. So yeah, I I to to get to the end of my answer, like I am knackered. I am a little bit panicked, but I wanted to have a little chit chat about films before uh, we get to the big day. <laughs> And then we'll come back out on the other side and we'll resume, as I keep promising we'll do, we'll resume like a regular uh, schedule of producing these shows and putting them out where I don't spend every first few minutes of the show saying, oh, I'm so stressed and I haven't watched any films, which has been recently. Having said that, I am stressed and I haven't really watched any films. So, Paul, why don't you start us off with the regular section that we begin with, what have you been watching recently? However, before you do that, I should say, uh, this is a show in three acts, as listeners now uh, should know. Uh, act one today, Paul, what have we got? At one, are we talking about acts now, sorry? The three-act structure, what are we doing? Is this what we're getting at, sorry? It's, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I could tell that you were you were gripped by my lead in there to the point was, where you yes, didn't know what yes. I'd been talking about. And Skype, and Skype gave me a wobble just at the very wrong got moment. It. So you kind of, you said a word, I didn't hear it. So, so yes. yeah, we, we've got um, three acts coming up on the show. Act one, act two, act yes. three. This week, a little bit different because we've got two feature reviews coming up in act one and act two. Paul, yes, we what have. are those? Yes, we have. So we've got the the latest from writer-director Drew Goddard, uh, Bad Times at the El Royale. That will be our first feature review. Uh, Our second feature review, you may have noticed the new Damien Chazelle film has come out starring uh, Ryan Gosling as Neil Armstrong in First Man. So we've got a review of that. And then we've got our regular top five, and this week will be slightly different. So we're rather than uh, top five films necessarily, we're going to go with our top five favourite Ryan Gosling performances. Um, the link there, of course, being the fact that if you haven't worked it out already, Ryan Gosling, you will have worked it out because I just mentioned it, Ryan Gosling stars as Neil Armstrong in First Man. So that will basically be the uh, the bones of the show this week, um, and we shall aim to hang some flesh off of it. <laughs> what have you been watching, and what's been sort of most interesting of the stuff that you've watched in the last week? So, um, yeah, so I have been, basically, uh, at the end of, starting last year, we did our, what, best best and worst 10 of the year films at the end of the year, didn't we, Pete, mm. I think? Was it, or best, was it worst five, something like yeah. that? But either way, I've got to the point, I've got to the sort of October of this year, realising that I haven't really seen that many films that are on people's shit lists. Um, so I thought I should start. Um, and what a place to start. 
Other than, what a place to start would be uh, Kevin Connolly, who started Entourage, which is a show I've never seen and have no interest in watching because it looks absolutely vile. Um, yeah, he's directed a film called Gotti, starring John Travolta um, as the legendary mob bo- New York mob boss, uh, John Gotti. This is one of a handful of films um, to still, I believe, still have a rating of 0% on Rotten Tomatoes, Pete. So, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and, and to, for the uninitiated, I'm, I'm sure everyone gets the deal with Rotten Tomatoes, but that doesn't mean that everybody's given it zero out of five or zero no. out of ten or zero percent. It just means that no of the, none of the listed critics who have applied and been accepted onto that, um, that group of uh, opinion makers on that site, none of them have said that this is an above middle uh fi- like basically if you give so a film three two and out of five stars, isn't it kind of minimum would yeah, be two and a, uh, two, yeah below two and a half stars would be a poor review and therefore it would get a, a exactly it's kind of a fucked up yeah. flawed system but yeah it, it's pretty obvious if it's got naught that it probably is terrible <laughs> yes. is it as bad as that scene uh yes um, th- my frustration with this is, is I kind of I, I saw the trailer and then I saw the uh, the honest trailers which I bang on about a lot which always entertain me and I thought Do you know what this could be one of those films that's so bad it's funny uh, which I talk about quite a lot on this show um, and I really wish it was so bad it was funny it's just so bad that it's bad there's really sort of not many redeeming features of this film John Truffaut's performance is, is pretty is okay um, but the film kind of makes zero sense. I mean, at, at one point you're being, you appear to be being narrated to by the character of John Gotti. But I'm sure at the point of time he's supposed to be narrating from, the character's actually dead. So that makes no sense at all. Um, there's big leaps. It sort of takes sort of 10, 15 year, maybe 10 or 15 year jumps, maybe 30 year jumps uh, through time, just seemingly at random. So you have no idea why you've suddenly... So at one point you've got John Gotti talking to his son in jail. And at one point you flash back to, to John Gotti's son, John Gotti with his son when they're much, much younger. And then you might have jumped forward. Um, and John Travolta seems to age in these scenes. His son, uh, I, I'm going to say for the sake of argument, John Gotti Jr., I don't care, uh, <laughs> it, it never ages in the film. So he looks like, when he's 17, he looks like he's probably 21. And when he's 45, he looks like he's 21. So there's sort of no attention paid to any detail whatsoever. Um, and as anyone who's seen the honest trailer for this has known, I'm not going to take credit for this myself, uh, whole reams of this film are just shot-for-shot rehashes of Goodfellas. Like, it's, it's absolutely embarrassing as if you look at it side by side just the similarities between this and goodfellas but this is not goodfellas this is badfellas avoid it at all costs it's not even so bad it's funny it's just so bad it's offensively boring do something else with your time it, where, where is this particular sort of mine that people need to step over like is it on netflix or, uh, or amazon i paid four pound 49 to rent this from xbox video <laughs> <laughs> more for yes, you sir yes. you've actually I've given gone it money yes. yeah. you, you've gone to buy a turd i'm sure it will be on amazon prime or netflix beyond too long so yeah if you are if you are a glutton for punishment like myself at times then certainly yeah certainly if you are if you are have a fascination with bad movies or want to see something that's got naught percent on rotten tomatoes depending on how serious you take that then by all means check this out everyone else still well clear it's a big bag of crap <laughs> is there anything that you've seen that is in any way a little bit better than that i mean i'd imagine naught percent on rotten tomatoes whatever you talk about next is going to be a better movie yes uh i've seen uh netflix's latest offering uh directed by um a favorite of i'm gonna say ours because i think you'd very much like the raid and raid 2 don't you pete unless i'm otherwise mistaken um yeah is this the movie that you said you weren't going to talk about in this episode and you were going to save for the next episode it was 
was, yeah. Shall I move on? Do you want me to save it for the next Yeah, episode? I reckon. Yeah, okay. I reckon I'm not going to tell that, you what that, movie that is. You can guess that all by yourselves. Um, to, to be fair, <laughs> to be fair to Paul, like that is my fault because we were going to do a feature on that on this show. Uh, the movie's Apostle, it's fine. But um, yeah, it's uh, Gareth Davies. Gareth Evans. Sorry, Gareth, Gareth Evans, Evans uh, new one. Gareth, the, the, the Raid Evans. Right, anyway, we weren't going to talk about that. We're not going to talk about that. We're going to move on to another film that I've watched this week, which is another Netflix film uh, directed by a sometimes favourite of ours. So it almost works. It almost works here. Uh, directed by Paul Greengrass. This is um, 22nd of July, about the uh, really very, very tragic um, Anders Breivik massacre in on the island of Utoya in Norway. Um, the, the kind of politically charged killings from the... Yeah, the the far right um, terrorist Anders Breivik. Um, it's a familiar territory for Paul Greencross here to try and um, dramatise real life events, and I'm not really going to go into. I'm not really going to talk about whether you think that's ethically right or wrong, because either way, we have a film here um, that does exist. Um, in 1993, I think was was a very very successful film. Um, it, it's a very very hard watch, and, and absolutely should have been that way. Um, 22nd July, so 22nd July again is, is his, I'd say, second attempt at taking on, or third attempt at taking on um, real life events. Um, for the most part, this is, I would say, very, very good. I think the first half, um, the first half of the film that dramatizes the actual shooting on the island is, is, uh, is very, is very, very gripping. It's very, very tough to watch. And again, you know, it should be, it shouldn't be. It's, it's hard to watch more than it is entertaining. And if you are going to take a real life events, then that's definitely the way you should skew these kind of films. Um, I have to say, though, I think the film runs just about round about the two hours, 20 minute mark. And I think it unfortunately it, it, t- it sort of runs out of steam towards the end. I think there's almost too much. There's almost too much film here. I think if you cut it by about 10 or 15 minutes, I think you'd be looking at a much, much more powerful film. Um, the bit with the, the, the second half bits focused on actual Breivik himself are certainly the more interesting parts of the film. And the stuff focusing on the victims, although obviously it's important, she needs to show the victims here. You don't want this film, you do not want this film at any point to be seen to be glamorising Anders Breivik. And in fairness to Greengrass, he doesn't do that, so I can see why he's kept it balanced. But I just don't think that possibly the performances of some of the survivors are as strong as the, the performances of the guy that plays Breivik here. So I think the film lets itself down a little bit in the second half. I would say it's it's, it's certainly worth checking out. But it's not as good as United ninety three. Yeah, and good in sort of inverted commas, like like you're saying, Paul, because of of course United ninety three is like yeah. I, it sticks with me for many reasons, as I'm sure it does everybody else. But like it it was one of the films that really like kind of almost upsets your stomach, like watching that thing. It it's so nerve wracking yeah. and so horrible, and so much more so because it's the depiction of a real life event that that it's the kind of film that I got to the end of really admired in terms of a piece of, of filmmaking and a sort of achievement and never wanted to watch again yeah 100 percent. yeah yeah you're in the same sort of territory he's used um, unprofessional and non-professional actors here as well which i think uh, yeah helps possibly hinders it in its second half with some of the survivors but it's you know it's well made it's made absolutely with the right intentions doesn't glamorize it so yeah it's, it's an interesting film more than it is an enjoyable one but not as Rather than not as good as United 93, not and perhaps not as effective as United 93 would be a better way to put it. I, I know a man um, who who can make uh, both interesting and enjoyable films is the actress Nicolas Cage, Paul. And haven't you seen the new one from old Nicky Cage? I've been busy this week, haven't I? I have, I've watched a lot of films this week. Yeah, I managed to get across to uh, Bristol, uh, the Watershed Cinema in Bristol, which is an incredible place, uh, which I've talked about on the show before, and got to see Mandy on its cinematic release. So this is the new one from... 
uh, director Panos Cosmatos, who made a film that I think I might have talked about on this show a little while ago called uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow. He may have made other films. I am not aware of them. I didn't go too much on Beyond the Black Rainbow, although it was visually incredible. It felt a bit like an A-level or student film. Mandy, on the other hand, is an exceptional slice of over-the-top fun, Pete. It's just ridiculous. Is that where you've just fucking read your letterbox review? Because I know when you <laughs> when you slip into, like, B-grade film critic voice, it's when no, you're I reading didn't something that you've already written down, written that written that down. down somewhere I else. I have written that down, in fairness. So, uh, B-grade film critic voice, thank you for that. <laughs> the tell, the yeah. tell, Paul, is when you say my name as a right. tag at the end of it. When you say, like, this film is blah, 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 Pete, then I'm like, oh, Paul already wrote right. that somewhere. Okay. I recognise that that's another... Well, that's not actually what I put in my letterbox review. But if you want my letterbox review, you can have it. So everything is dialed up to 11, Pete. (laughs) And the film is beautifully shot. Uh, Nicolas Cage is in screen-chewing form. And Linus Roach delivers one of the year's best villains. That's exactly what I put on Letterboxd. Um, is Is it kind of empty, though? I haven't seen this movie yet, but I've kind of I, I feel like I've got some of the less positive um, review stuff to indicate that like maybe ultimately it's all very like shocking and stylish, but maybe not that. Yeah, meaningful. I'd argue, I'd, yeah, I would argue that that there's a case for that. I mean, you're going to know if you've watched the trailer, you're already going to you would probably have an idea whether you're going to enjoy this movie or not. In in all honesty, if you like kind of. If you like over-the-top exploitation action films, you, you're going to enjoy this, and I do. Um, it's and also I think that what anyone can take from it is the fact that Panos Cosmatos has uh, a very individual eye for visuals. I would say, and he's there's a mismatch of influences here, and the film looks absolutely incredible. Whether you like what's contained within it, um, there's there's kind of elements of Hellraiser here, there's elements of sort of Chainsaw Massacre. There's there's loads and loads and loads and loads, and that's just two of of many, many, many different references in here. So, yeah, it's 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 mass it's exploitation without a shadow of a doubt, and I don't think it really pretends to be anything else. Um, so, yeah, if you're going into it expecting kind of like a deep character study and, and more depth than than Nicolas Cage, like having a chainsaw duel with a with another sort of ridiculously beefed up Roy guy, um, and just some he's running around with an axe that he forged himself, um, and just yeah, just looming at camera in that very famous Nicolas Cage way. Um, yeah, there, yeah, there's probably not a lot of depth here, but what you get is similar, similar. They're not similar films, but a bit like film Revenge. You get some very beautiful exploitation stuff that I really, really enjoyed. So yeah, not. And it's a phrase that we both have ended up hating. It's not a film for everyone, but you're going to know whether you like it before you go in, I would say. I'd be very surprised. Whether you like it or not, I don't know, Pete, but I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that. I guess what I'm getting at is like, um, or what I would get at with films like this, like when we talked about Revenge, is, is from your point of view, because I know that sometimes you'll say, like today, you'll say, uh, you know, it's a piece of exploitation, so you don't expect it to be too deep. And I get that. And it's totally, you know, I can't fault that. Uh, on the other hand I suppose my kickback is yes but is it good exploitation though because it's not really acceptable uh, from my side to say like oh yeah don't try and judge this critically in terms of its depth because it's just exploitation and therefore it gets a hall pass like is this a good Uh, exploitation movie yes because if you you go the visuals the visuals for me and the way the like the uh, the visuals, the soundtrack. It's Johan Johansson doing the soundtrack, actually. Um, it must, I imagine it's one of his final soundtracks. Um, but yeah, like the visuals and the, the like, the technical ability that the filmmaker shows for me rises above rises above this your normal exploitation clag, uh, for want of a better word. So yeah, I would say, 
if you if you see it, I would say go for the visuals because it does look incredible. And there's one scene in particular that involves um, sort of two faces coming together. That if you thought it worked well in Blade Runner twenty forty nine, is yeah, it's just one of the most yeah one of the most haunting scenes we see this year. So yeah, visually, it's incredible. And if you don't even if you don't if you if you can't stomach the exploitation elements of it, it's worth seeing for the visuals. So yes, it is good exploitation. Cool. Um. So yeah, I my from my side, I've got kind of one and a half things to talk about. Um, the half thing I'll mention first because it's strictly speaking, uh, in fact, not at all a film. But um, I've I've blazed through recently the series um, Killing Eve, which is this thing that is uh, on the BBC iPlayer. I think it's available now. Um, but it's I guess notable to the film fan, to the discerning film fan, because at the centre of it you've got um, Sandra Oh, who is um, you know fairly well regarded, and um, opposite. It, playing opposite as the antagonist of this thing is basically the reason to talk about it on our show because there is an actress Paul by the name of Jodie Comer who plays in in this movie a relentless um, seemingly uh, psychopathic assassin who travels around various locales in Europe and the rest of the world uh, knocking people off in fairly fairly like violent vicious creative despicable ways and this character, uh, she's called Villanelle in the show, is uh, played by uh, Jodie Comer. She's like a 24-year-old scouser. 25 maybe now, Jodie Comer. But when you see her in the in the show, she's doing, um, fre- well, French accent. She's speaking in Russian. She's speaking in Italian. She's speaking with an American accent. It's like the greatest possible gift you could get as a young actress yeah. in terms of the scope of the role. And I would be astonished if Jodie Comer doesn't go on to do fairly significant things on the big screen if that's what she wants to do. Because to see someone this young pull off a role that Mm. could be so fudged. Um, Obviously, you've got here underneath the show, if people don't know, the creator is uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who made Fleabag. The writing is very smart. It's got a very sharp visual style. Sandra Oh is a reliable co-star, and we we know that from proof in, in many other things aside from this. And... You know, the, the location shooting is great, but what propels this thing forward all the way through is the fact that you've got the detective, Sandro, and the villain, uh, I guess, the psychopath, Jodie Comer, kind of fascinated okay. and repulsed by each other. Uh, particularly, there's repulsion towards this Coma character because she is just, yeah, just stabbing and slicing and dicing everybody in her sight without, like, caring about any of the stuff, apparently, that she's doing. So, yeah, like, Killing Eve is not a movie, but it is a TV show that people should check out because I think it's, for some people, sort of flown under the radar and it's really, really good. It zips by, it's like eight episodes and then it's out. So, yeah, uh, check it out if you have access to, like, the iPlayer and whatnot or whichever network it's on in America, I have no idea. Um, aside from my Joey Coma <laughs> shout out, my actual movie for our movie show is uh, one that Paul you talked about, I think last week, which is um, A Star Is Born from debuting film director Sir Bradley <laughs> Cooper. He's not knighted yet. Uh, Bradley Cooper. Bra- Bradley Cooper. So, like, you covered this, and if correct me if I'm wrong, but what I sort of t- took away from your um, thoughts was that it is a very good movie. Um, the musical elements of the movie are very strong and then maybe it's a little bit strong on the hype side of things yes. when it comes to the critical yeah. response to this. Is that is that accurate? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, yeah and I, I basically think I am with you, Paul. I think all I need to add, really, it's not, not a great deal because I think you, you, yeah, we hold pretty similar opinions, is my issue with A Star Is Born is that I spent the first 
10 to 15 minutes thinking this thing's just going to rip me in half because I'm an absolute mark when it comes to <laughs> relationships that then result in onstage performances. Yeah. Like the broken circle breakdown that I talked about recently broke me down. Uh, fucking The Greatest Showman made me weep <laughs> like a baby. However, in the first sort of 10, 15 minutes, you have this naturalistic stuff between the two characters. You have Lady Gaga's character kind of coming from work in a nine to five kind of slave to the wage job, meeting up with this grizzled veteran performer and having the opportunity to sort of be plucked from obscurity. And I'm like, I'm so with this. I'm so with it. And then A Star is Born becomes a movie that isn't about the star being born. This is a movie about the decline of a middle-aged rocker. This is a movie about the guy on the way down, not the girl on the way up. This is a movie that is screenwritten um, amongst a group of about half a dozen screenwriters uh, who are adapting from the source material, which I think has been adapted three or four times. Three times, uh, I think, yeah. The, the p- yeah, one of the screenwriters here, I think head screenwriter, was also screenwriter on um, Benjamin Button, which I didn't know when I had the thought in the movie, this arc is very similar to Benjamin Button, where you've got one person going one way, one person going the other way, and they're going to meet in the middle, and there's yeah. a sort of impossibility to the whole thing. However, I can't say how the movie ends, obviously, that's not what we're about on this show, but to go there and to leave it with that shot of our of our protagonist the lady gaga character she's excellent in this by the way to leave it there with that it's like to me it felt ugh, like the the film had been robbed of the opportunity to tell a story about a star on the rise mm. and instead it had taken the t- attention to the to the male kind of protagonist i guess de facto protagonist of this thing because because we have to see everything through the lens of his own self-pity to some degree right um do you think that's a, a partly the fault of the age of the source material though if you if you I, think we're, we're, look, we're looking at too much from a male perspective or do you think that's i suppose the screenwriters could should be more but, than aware of that but yeah the, the the screenwriters are, are able to do whatever they want with this story and i just think that the more interesting story here is to it's not about completely changing the way it's plotted although i think at times it is like you said i think in your review it's like kind of over long and it could have been yeah. trimmed down a little bit but like is to like Lady Gaga is great in this, and she needed the opportunity to be the anchor to the movie rather than that having to be given away about halfway through. Mm. And finally, I just want to mention that like his, it's a tricky subject to talk about this without mentioning anything specific yeah. about what happens at the end of the movie. But the decision, the the sort of negative, I guess, decision that is taken by the Bradley Cooper character off the back of an exchange with a very, very sketchily drawn Stereotypical, horrible... Musical yeah. agent. Yeah, yeah, just I just didn't buy it. And I think, yeah, this is like... It's, it's sold as kind of crowd-pleasing entertainment. But boy, oh boy, if you think this is crowd-pleasing entertainment, by the end, I think you're going to have a different idea. Uh, yeah, the stuff I absolutely adored in this movie and big chunks of it I just thought very very poor choices were taken and I think that's a shame and I think I think I I feel it's a strange thing to say for a woman worth in excess of 250 million dollars but I kind of feel a little bit bad for Lady Gaga coming off this thing if I'm completely (laughs) honest anyway that one was A Star Is Born it's in cinemas now form your own opinion and tell us why we're right or wrong um Paul we're going to be back in just a moment with the first act which is going to be, be a big old meaty review of Bad Times at the El Royale right after this
And back we are. Um, yeah, so this is Bad Times at the El Royale, written and directed by Drew Goddard, who I think last, in terms of sort of film direction, last brought us Cabin in the Woods, unless I'm otherwise mistaken. Uh, yeah, which... that's, that's pretty much that's pretty much it. He's worked on... He worked uh, on Daredevil, the... didn't he, I think, on, for Netflix. And he, and he worked on the, the Good Place, I think it's called, okay. on, uh, that's on Netflix as well, I think now. Um, but yeah, the, the feature thing. And I, to be honest, for me and you, Paul, I reckon the thing that gets you through the door at the cinema is, oh, this is the dude who did Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, right? for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cabin in the Woods was great. So, um, yeah, so this is, uh, so who have we got starring in this? Um, I'm just trying to, I'm, I'm visualising the poster. I'm going to work around. You've got, well, um, go on, sorry. I was just going to say, yeah, well, just to kind of set it up with that part included and then jump in, like, we have a collection of characters who all meet at the El Royale Hotel. The El Royale Hotel as the uh, bellboy come receptionist come uh, bar man come every role in the hotel, one lad, uh, is a bi-state hotel because half of the hotel exists in Nevada and the other half in California and guests can choose rooms on either side of the hotel which will put them in different states. This is all kind of window dressing for a series of characters meeting up to check when they check into the hotel. Those characters are, or key players here are, um, John Hamm, who plays a kind of a hammy, I guess, uh, salesman, who's also relatively sexist from the outset and sure of himself and uh, not unfond of a, of a quip or two. To a little bit like Don fellow, Draper, really. <laughs> a, a, a tiny bit like a sort of much cornier, less pared-down yeah. version of Don Draper. Um, in addition, we also have... Um, who am I missing? Oh, Dakota Johnson, who's the last of them, I think, to turn up. She plays Emily Summerspring, who is a well-dressed, kind of sassy character who may or may not be involved in some murky business. I mean, all these people might be involved in, in murky <laughs> business. We've also got Jeff Bridges, who, when we meet him first, is a priest. Um, and he is looking to check into the hotel because another plan fell through and he has to take uh, the next best option, which is the El Royale, even though the guy at the desk basically tells him this is not a place for a priest. Um, he decides that he's going to stay there anyway. Later in the movie, we get an appearance from Chris Hemsworth. More on that later. And I should mention as well, a uh, key character checking into this hotel, played by an actress I don't really know, called uh, Sylvia, uh, Cynthia, I should say, Erivo who maybe is a jumping off point, Paul, for, for further chat on this film, I think is the best thing in this movie. But before we get into yeah, her character sure, yeah. in any, any more depth, given this setup, given you've got this sort of limited storytelling and all these people are going to be in one place and you've got a very distinct, uh, I think like 1970s um, set here, set up, um, and, and the, the set dressing absolutely immaculate, First of all, what were your expectations during the first sort of 10 minutes of the film as you saw what it was going to be? And then as the movie continues into its sort of second act, did you feel like it was going where you wanted it to go somewhere else? Were you bored? Were you having a good time? What did you think about this movie? Uh, I'll be honest, the first half, I, disappointingly, I have to say for the first half, I was pretty bored. 
Um, I, I, I feel I've seen a lot of this stuff before. It's just, listeners, it might be the case that not all these characters are not all of which they seem, uh, which is pretty obvious from, from opening door, from the, the moment the doors open in, in the El Royale Hotel. Um, yeah, and I just thought I'd seen, I, I really was struggling. I was fighting sleep for the first half, if, if I'm 100% honest. Um, and I thought I'd seen a lot of these characters done done more interestingly and, and better elsewhere. Um, and also, I think my, my one of my bigger issues with, with the first half and the film in general is you've got the Hope the El Royale. It's set across two state lines. Why? They do nothing with that. They do so little with the fact it's set across two state lines, which could have been a really quite interesting twist. And then kind of nothing really comes of it, apart from the fact that the characters have made some quips like, oh, we've left California and now we're in Nevada. We've left California yeah. and now, oh, ha ha. Like... I suppose there's, so so at the beginning of the movie, you see this very brief sequence play out where a man um, sort of, without explanation, a man's in one of the hotel rooms. We don't know exactly when this is. Uh, I think, it, or maybe, no, it does set up because title cards exist yeah. throughout this movie, kind it's of breaking up the action and telling us. Isn't it? Yeah where we are yeah exactly and and we have this character i believe it's like 10 years earlier and he's in a hotel room at the el royale and he strips up the carpet takes up the boards buries a bag um and then when everything's replaced and you think that he's sort of done his criminal deed he is summarily executed that character played by nick offerman who i don't think is in the rest of the movie i don't think that's a spoiler for anything um it turns out that that was the proceeds from a robbery that was carried out by the Jeff Bridges character with his brother where they were going to drop off the loot and then pick it up later from the El Royale. And I wonder whether this by state thing also has a connection to the idea that as soon as you cross state lines then you're out of the jurisdiction Perhaps, of a particular yeah. authority but yeah it's not so, made particularly clear here though but but you're absolutely right it's not made clear and like in the trailer because they make such a big show of it yeah. you think well this is going to be absolutely central to the plot yeah, like the state line like, like there's, you, you think there might be like standoffs across the state line or this kind of thing none of that really happens um second half wise i think things got better um i think it's Chris Hemsworth, I think, pretty much saves the day in this film, for me at least, um, when his when his kind of, well, I won't to say too much as to what his character is, when his character finally arrives on the scene, um, I think that the film certainly notches itself up a gear. Um, but, yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we overall... can say, we can say, without, I think without spoiling anything, we can say that, like, he is a sort of messianic character. It's, it's, it's kind yeah. of, uh, not not to spoil anything in terms of plot and say that he is that and he also has a tie to the Dakota Johnson character but yeah. again more on that when you go to see the movie yourself I mean I kind of disagree the Chris Hemsworth thing I, I have a lot of time for Chris Hemsworth I mm. think he's great however in this thing I just felt like oh here comes Chris Hemsworth to do that kind of you know in your off time when you're not being Thor or like making absolute buckets of money from doing bigger projects you go do something where you're like oh that was like way out there and weird and kind yeah. of zany and I feel like there is an awful lot of sort of scenery chewing and uh, grandstanding from Chris Hemsworth where as I mentioned I think that for me the thing that's interesting in the movie or the character that's interesting in the, interesting in the movie is the character played by i've lost her name again um cynthia arrivo because cynthia arrivo plays this woman who's singing constantly throughout yeah. the movie and she sings like the sort of um the classic soul songbook so um a, a sequence early on where there's a discovery made about the fact that the rooms have got in them um like one-way mirrors uh, one-way glass so that essentially they can be spied upon from people who are in a channel by all those rooms 
um, she is just performing these numbers beautifully to the extent that the person listening in leaves her on as the action continues to play out. So you've got this beautiful soul accompaniment to what's happening. And like, as a piece of isolated filmmaking, those kinds of moments oh, are yeah, really, no, uh, really, yeah, really great. I completely agree. Some of the set pieces that are involved around her singing, and there's one later on where um, uh, Jeff Bridges, the priest character, is involved and he's trying to cover up what he's doing. Um, mm. using the sound of her singing it's incredible and then when she starts and clapping, clapping. Like, yeah. so some of those set pieces are absolutely superb and that, again that, like, yeah, yeah those I'm glad bits, you mentioned those that bits are, because... are absolutely fantastic without a shadow of a doubt the hi- highlight I... of the film for sure yeah, and you, like, exactly that. Yeah, you stole the words. Like, that for me is the best sequence in the film. It, it's brilliant. Yeah. But the actual sort of, um, the, the crescendo that occurs in this thing in the, the lobby of the hotel with all the various characters' motivations being sort of spilled out uh, and a bit of blood being spilled out and sort of cash being spilled out, it just didn't satisfy because it felt like I'm not enough invested in any of these people to no, really care how it all plays out at the end, and and I, I didn't mention in uh, in uh, my review of uh, Star Is Born, but it's funny that in Star Is Born, Bradley Cooper's kind of playing Jeff Bridges, playing a rock star. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, again, Jeff Bridges is an actor that I think we're both pretty big fans of, and here he has a perfectly good time. There's a lovely exchange. Uh, between him and this Cynthia Erivo uh, soul singer, Darlene is her name, between him and that character, which leads to a particularly surprising, um, sort of almost ju- almost like a jump scare, where I like jumped up yeah. in my seat when a thing happened between them. And that stuff's really, really good. But at the end of the day, if you don't care about these people, why would we care about the outcomes? And I just felt like there was a lot of style here. The detail in things like the way the jukebox pulled vinyl and flipped yeah. it. Oh, and- so stuff like that. I mean, the film the film looks great. Like, from start to finish, it does, it looks, yeah, it just looks beautiful. Um, but it's just not enough. As I said, I, I just, I struggled with the characters. I struggled to stay engaged with the film. Um, there's a twist towards the end about one of the characters that, again, just about brought me back into the film. And I thought, that's oh, it's quite cleverly done but yeah i think the problem is pete and i was trying to put my finger on the problem is but i think yeah the problem is you're not you're not given enough to work with these with these characters to really care about any of them to be perfectly honest um so yeah i I agree and it hasn't got yeah and, and sort of on top of that it it doesn't intend to but it hasn't got the sort of just um bravura stuff like the sort of virtuosic stuff in terms of throwing everything at the wall that you had with something like Cabin in the Woods because in Cabin in the Woods it's not like you're deeply invested in those characters by any means but when the thing goes nuts as it does you're but also in Cabin in the Woods the, the characters are actually very clever they're playing their anti-stereotypes right. in Cabin in the Woods so you've got the super intelligent jock-like character who's actually quite clever and then you see so you, like all the all those characters play it completely play against type although they look stereotypical they play against type so you do end up a bit more interested well, despite their the you could sort of argue interesting but you could argue that i guess drew goddard's done a similar thing here because a lot of these characters end up being a surprising subversion yeah. of what you were thought they were to begin with it just doesn't congeal together into something no. i don't think it's satisfying and like that that's kind of a shame again i feel like i'm saying that quite a bit recently but it's a little bit of a, sh- a shame because i really thought this was one where it had such a, a catchy striking trailer and it seemed to be endorsed in a few places that you know i take seriously and so i was excited to see it but um it, yeah kind of middling in the end yeah it looks great but middling i think that's pretty much sums it up sums it up perfectly to be honest 
Oh, I, I do want to say though, Paul, when I went to see this, bad times at El uh, Cineworld, because the, <laughs> the, the, this will be like this will be like uh, music to your ears, because I know you're a you're a vocal big Cineworld fan. You're yeah, a vocal critic fan. of Cineworld, but uh, the movie for the first time in like I've been going there to that particular cinema for like six years or something, and for the first time the movie just like stopped. You know, like if you had back in the day, uh, friends, not me, had like um you know illegally downloaded files that are in like a a, a particular format that doesn't play properly with the codex that you've got or whatever so it just sort of stops the frame stops and then it sort of judders forward that happened for like about 10 minutes of this movie to the point where some technician had to go and like press some buttons and stuff and it was just like oh man like the, the movie already is struggling to sort of whip me up into a real sense of, <laughs> of being interested and now it keeps stopping and starting again so yeah bad times on that front as well but yeah this, this one will show up on streaming and I'm sure it'll develop some kind of an audience and it'll be a good time on a Friday night but it's not anything to necessarily rush out and see at the cinema no. I'd say not considering it's been quite a big week for releases. So yeah, hang fire on that one. For sure. Absolutely. Um, don't hang fire though on our next act, which is act two, in which we're going to dive straight into another feature review. This time, Damien Chazelle's fr- free man? First man. <laughs> Damien Chazelle's first man in which Ryan Gosling is going to attempt to portray Neil Armstrong uh, doing something rather monumental right after this. Right, so as you've alluded to uh, before that brief break there, this is um, First Man, uh, directed by Damien Chazelle, who has previously brought us La La Land, uh, the not winner of the Best Picture um, Oscar, uh, and Whiplash is the other film that we're both very much big fans of. I say we're probably bigger fans of Whiplash than we are La La Land, but yes, yeah, so Damien Chazelle uh, doing something very, very different here, Pete, than what we've experienced him do before. Yeah. And I have to say, for a director of his age and with his experience, this is a bloody bold project to pick up, isn't it? <laughs> it, it really is uh, but i can't i can't step over first of all the irony um in in your lead in as you were saying quite rightly the the not winner of the oscar and isn't it interesting that now he's yeah. he's directing a movie that is fundamentally about a race to be first and not second yeah. um yeah. Yeah. but uh yes yeah i mean it makes me slightly ill every time i check again oh how old is damien chazelle again oh he was born in 1985 and i get a yeah. little bit of sick comes out of my mouth also damien chazelle <laughs> Oh, not his fault really punchable face Paul um, maybe those two <laughs> things are interconnected I don't know maybe I'm just a resentful arsehole who, who knows but yeah to take on something like this as you rightly say is incredibly ambitious and it is a risk there's a big risk in putting some your name on a project as large as this and having it misfire and then looking as though you've got like illusions or delusions of grandeur and you kind of got ideas yeah. above your station so, to set the movie up, there's not really a lot of setting up to do. Um, we have a, a character, character, Paul, Neil Armstrong uh, from, yeah. from the realms of real life. You might have heard of him. Yeah, yeah from the realms of real life, played by uh, the Canadian actor Ryan Gosling. And Neil Armstrong, as people may know, it was the first man to set foot on the moon in July of 1969, accompanied by Buzz Aldrin just behind him. The movie charts the journey from... Earlier in the space race and the attempts uh, and launches of the Gemini rockets, followed then by Apollo 11, the rocket in question. Should we have a, we have a clip? Oh, yeah, we didn't do one for the last movie. Uh, J- Jack, Jack, throw, it didn't a, deserve one. throw a yeah, little didn't clip deserve in. One. Yeah. Don't worry, I didn't deserve a clip. Yeah, Mills Attack <laughs> is going to drop a little clip in. So, uh, yeah, check this out. I don't know what 
space exploration will uncover, but I don't think it'll be exploration just for the sake of exploration. I think it'll be more the fact that it allows us to see things that maybe we should have seen a long time ago, but just haven't been able to until now. Does anyone have anything else? Yeah. Neil, I was sorry to hear about your daughter. I'm sorry, is there a question? Um, what, I, what I mean is, uh, do you think it will have an effect? I think it would be unreasonable to assume that it wouldn't have some effect. You can continue now about the clip, so say what you're going to say. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, this this movie yeah charting this space race attempt to get to the moon first and like i went in a court i guess between two posts one that i think damien chazelle is maybe slightly overcredited, and i say that with trepidation because my god the man is so young and so talented but on the other hand i'm fascinated by the topic of space um for a period in my life i became almost dangerously clinically obsessed with the space shuttle columbia disaster in, in 2003 um and i needed to basically consume everything about that event and here was fascinated to see how this was dealt with having raved so much about things like gravity that take maybe a bit more of a liberal attitude towards the the truths of space travel what you were going to get from chazelle was a a, a symphony of very precise details and that's exactly what you get Paul did the Chazelle approach to this story work for you uh yes or no and why and let's get in into it from there uh in short yes uh I thought this this was very very well done the touchstone here really has to be the film the right stuff uh I was really I was really hoping to get a gag in uh on the earlier bit of the podcast where we say does this film have the right stuff I didn't get there listeners you'd be pleased to know but now I've mentioned it so it's out there um but yeah in short yes I think it does and I think um from a technical perspective, this film is just so well put together and I think just so well shot that, again, and that, you know, Damien Chazelle can't be credited with all of that. But I think if if we start on the um, start on the kind of the space scenes, um, which obviously are key to making this kind of thing work, I think um, it is it's certainly a match for the right stuff in those areas, which is another, which is another really good film about the space race if you haven't seen it. Um, yeah, I just think the, the space stuff is incredible and I think what they do from a technical perspective is... It really, really gives you from the moment from the opening scenes when you're kind of in the test craft with Neil Armstrong because he starts off as a test pilot before he's an astronaut um, and he's kind of reaching the boundaries of space. You really, really feel the claustrophobia of the fact that these guys are, are in essentially like thin experimental metal boxes and they're being sent into the space, being sent into space with stuff that just hasn't worked before. And really, they are testing. They are testing this stuff out and their lives are really on the line. And there's. There's certain scenes when you, when they get put into the spacecraft and the way like did you see this on IMAX by the way people I did yeah oh you lucky bastard um, yeah like the way the way the things like clank shut and the way they they close the cockpit on them and you can't really see much and some people have criticised it for this which I I really will rally against because I just think it gives you such a sense of claustrophobia and a much better idea of what it would have actually been like to be in this in the spaceship when it launches and when yeah. they do finally reach space when they kind of wipe off the condensation and can just see a little bit of the uh, of space out of the window you're like no this is yeah this is what it would have been like and you really get a sense of how horrible and just 
how much brute force is really required to get a, ma- a rocket into space. You really, really get a sense of that, I think. Yeah, it, it's interesting because you mentioned the right stuff. And then I think another clear influence here is Kubrick in 2001. And what yeah. you've got from Chazelle is this like um, a combination of those influences and what you're talking about, this like very... Um, <sighs> Yeah, unsettling, but also well-observed and realistic approach to showing that, like you say, Paul, like this is technology that, that doesn't, hasn't given precedence in which there's been massive success. What you're mainly talking about is aborted attempts, uh, disastrous attempts, uh, near-miss attempts. And you get this sequence at the, towards the beginning of the movie where Gosling's Armstrong character is taking a sort of rocket aeroplane craft a test craft just to the edge of the atmosphere but then can't re-enter because he's effectively i think it's described as such he's he's bouncing off the atmosphere it's almost like you get this idea from um from whiplash of like bouncing off the surface of drum and you get from giselle like yeah this kind of balletic stuff particularly in terms of the justin Hurwitz score that reminds you of things like um 2001 but at the same time you are with the astronauts as you say paul in the rockets and you think like this is what it would have felt like and like this thing could just fucking disintegrate at any moment like it's rattling around things are loose things are not quite perfectly adjoined to one another and we're really like holding our breath with them about even though we know the outcome i mean anybody with even a passing interest in the events well this is the thing and that's why i think this film this like these elements this certainly these elements they film really work so well for me because as you've said they, they still manages to be tense even though you know what's going to happen so and like moving on to staying on the kind of the space scenes before we go back into back to Earth, as it were, um, the moon landing. I just, I, I, my understanding in IMAX, Pete, is that it's the only scene in IMAX. So it actually, the the screen stretches uh, for the moon landing in IMAX is my understanding of how Chazelle's used that, which I think is a brilliant way of using IMAX myself. Um, but the moon landing is just, and the, it's just so tense. You like, you know, they do it. You know, they do it because because it happened in real life. Um, the twist isn't at the end that Stanley Kubrick pops up and goes, "I made this." That's not the twist at the end of the film. Uh, but yeah, like the, you just know they know you know where the film's going, but it still manages to be tense, which is testament to the quality of the set pieces. And the moon landing itself is one of the finest bits of cinema I've seen this year. It's just beautiful. Yeah, just and, beautiful. and within that, I mean, again, back to the director Damien Chazelle, he he makes some very um, easily missed actually uh, small additions in detail, things like. When you're on the moon with Armstrong looking from first person perspective, he's used a kind of fisheyeing on his lens in order to warp the edge of the frame. So you feel even more so that you're within that helmet because Mm. the edge where he would have warped vision on his periphery, you as a viewer can see that as he's panning left to right, there's that warping happening on the edge of the frame as well. That could have been overdone, but here it's really subtle to such an extent actually that that Francesca told me afterwards she hadn't even noticed that was a thing. So like there's there's a lot there and there's a lot there I think when you go back that you'll notice in this, um, like I say, sort of symphony of detail that is going to reward repeat viewings um from all of that then it sounds like a sort of gushing completely one-sided you know double thumbs up a hundred out of a hundred type of review (laughs) um i want to jump into not anything like super negative but um 
your assessment, Paul, and it's very important, I suppose, going into the chart that we're going to do today, the top t top five, which is going to be best Ryan Gosling performances. Where does Ryan Gosling's depiction of Neil Armstrong sit for you in terms of how successful he was, what worked, what didn't? What was your take on, on him? Well, this thing, so yeah, as you say, we've talked a lot about the stuff in space. We haven't really talked about the stuff back on Earth. So I think the, the stuff back on Earth probably isn't quite as effective. I don't think it's necessarily Ryan Gosling's fault. I think if you... I've done quite a bit of reading around this now and watched a few interviews with Neil Armstrong and... By all accounts, I don't know the man, and I don't claim to know the man. Uh, Neil Armstrong isn't a, wasn't a particularly uh, full of life character anyway, you know. And the, the film certainly depicts that he was kind of matter of fact and just got on and and did what needed to be done. Which for someone in the field of being an astronaut and being the first man on the moon is pretty important. You might think they might be quite focused and uh, perhaps being more focused on work than it would be on on life outside of work. So yeah, the, my understanding of the Neil Armstrong character, he is a, quite a dry character anyway. Um, and I think Gosling has portrayed this pretty well, in all honesty. I know there's been criticism of his performance because it's a little bit flat, and arguably, maybe, okay, we are watching a bit of entertainment here, so the argument is maybe Gosling could have brought a bit more to this in terms of a livelier performance to make those scenes a bit more entertaining, but he is he is portrayed, supposed to be portraying... Well, he is portraying a real-life character, so you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, really. I didn't have a problem with Gosling's performance, personally. What about you, but Pete? I mean, but I mean, Paul, there's, there's a canyon between I didn't have a problem with his performance and I think it's a really good performance. Like, do you think it's a really good performance or do you just think, like, it's not a problem? I think it's a, I think it's a fine performance. Um, I don't... Well, this is the difficulty. I, I don't know if... If I knew uh, Neil Armstrong, like, well... I could then go, this is a good or bad performance. He's died, I don't know Paul. Him. It's that he's died. Well, exactly, yes. Yeah. Well, exactly. So, yeah. So, obviously, I don't know him. Yeah, or, I, or, but you see where I'm coming from. I, if, I I knew totally the man, do, yeah. if I knew the man himself, which I didn't, um, then how can I how can I judge whether this is a good or bad performance when you don't know the person he's portraying? Yeah, no, so. I agree. Although, obviously, there is also a debate around, like, to what extent should a depiction of a real-life person be purely a mimic of that person? And to what extent yeah. the actor yeah. can bring something more to the role? I mean, from my side, and, I'll, and we'll touch on it more when we get to the Ryan Gosling top five, I think that the issue if anything that i have with his depiction of neil armstrong is maybe one that's more endemic to ryan gosling as an actor which is that pared down and sort of inscrutable and uh the word that you use somewhat somewhat earlier paul uh, flat can be a criticism that you level at a number of his recent more recent latter career performances i think but uh yeah not a huge problem i mean i do want to mention as well because we can't sort of skip over all of the other people who brought performances to the to the table no. uh the literally the uh, the dinner table in the case of claire foy claire foy plays janet armstrong neil armstrong's uh, wife of course and there's a terrific sequence in the movie in terms of the stuff that does take place on earth where um she goes to neil and tells him if you're going off to do this mission, you're going to go into the front, into the kitchen or the dining room, wherever they have their dinner. You're going to go into the other room and you're going to gather the, the two boys that they have. You're going to gather them and you're going to tell them that you're doing it and you're going to tell them that you might not come back. And you're going to do that. I'm not going to do it. Because you can see that, like, in a performance that I think is very strong in, in Claire Foy. Um, oh, absolutely. Claire yeah, Foy doing all kinds of things, by the way, play, playing Elizabeth Salander soon. So, yeah, all over the map. Yes. But, um, yeah, this performance, like, really in a short amount of screen time you get this impression this woman is so uh 
at the kind of um, whim almost. Although Gosling's career is incredibly important, uh, Neil Armstrong's, I should say, is not Ryan Gosling, really. Although the, <laughs> the career pursuit is incredibly important, she's a woman there going like, yes, but you do have a family though. And you do have children though. And you can't leave me to pick up all the pieces when you've gone off on your boy's own adventure, you know, into space and the final frontier and all that kind of thing. So I thought that was dealt with really well. I think some of yeah. the interplay between Gosling's character and the Ed White character played by Jason Clark is pretty good. Um, I think also the stuff with uh, Buzz Aldrin played by Corey Stoll here is is good. I think some of the supporting roles are good, but like then again, in a production of this size, you're going to have um, whiffs like Christopher Abbott, who's this incredibly talented rising star, as far as I'm concerned, who's been in things like It Comes at Night and recently Sweet Virginia that we talked about on this show. Christopher Abbott gets like about a minute of screen time here, and he might as well not be in the movie. And like some of the peripheral characters are very much peripheral in this thing. Yeah, I think this is this is a criticism I've, I've read leveled at it is that if he perhaps he should have made a film about the moon landing and not so much a biopic of of Neil Armstrong because Buzz Aldrin doesn't really get a lot to do. Although I think he's played fairly well by it's Corey Stoll, isn't it? That that guy from that thing who's in everything these days. Um, yeah, Buzz Aldrin doesn't get a lot of screen time, and there's and certainly uh, yeah, I think the. There is a, probably a different film to be made there, but then I suppose that's almost the right stuff has done that. In fairness, the right stuff is more about space travel than it is about. Yeah, but one no. Man but I mean, to be so, to be fair, Paul, yeah. like a, a kind of seasoned uh, film aficionado such as yourself, you've seen the right stuff and you'll see this. But like this generation, by and large, won't have seen the right stuff. No, that's true. So, so maybe maybe what we could say is there is room for another movie to exist uh, in the next few years that could go more in that direction. I guess. Yeah, and possibly more focused on the more focused on the the actual the space side of it and technology than the than the drama of of one man. But you know that's fine. That's what he's chosen. That's what he's chosen to focus this on. And why wouldn't you make a film about the first man on the moon? It's a pretty monumental achievement. So, yeah. But I would say there's there's another film to be made. That being said, I'd really really like this film a lot. I did. I really did. I thought it was. Um, yeah, the, the the stuff on the ground, I think, was, was very well put together. Um, I don't have a problem with Ryan Gosling's performance, although it's not incredible, but the strength of the film for me was in its technical merits and the stuff that was in space is just staggering. And the moon landing itself, I said, I've, I've said it before, I'll say it again now, is one of the one of the best things you'll see on a cinema screen this year. I just thought it was absolutely incredible. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm inclined to basically agree, Paul. I think that I came out of the movie slightly less taken with it than I was at various stages of the film. Um, mm. I think it's a better movie than A Star Is Born for the kind of, you know, what that's worth, which is very, yeah. very little. Um, I think that you have got a developing sense of Damien Chazelle as somewhat of a notorious kind of director who has certain like motifs and certain signals of his particular style of filmmaking whether you like it or don't you can't really at this stage deny that there isn't some unique Chazelle imprint although he is a director who borrows a lot from his influences and doesn't really do much to sort of hide that um, and whether that's homage or, or kind of stealing is it depends mm. which which side of that you fall and I mean things like for example it, it made me think of um What's your boy in Whiplash called? The uh, the actor. Mars Teller. Thank you. Yeah, uh, Mars Teller with his bleeding fist in the ice in that movie, and then you've got yeah. Neil Armstrong in this, cracking his own wine glass in his hand and bleeding onto himself yeah. when he hears a particular piece of news. And so those things start to see. It starts to make me feel like the body of work of this director is developing. But I kind of want to finish on Giselle by just saying that I had this thought 
I was really like racking my brain to think like, why don't I like this as much as I should, given all the positive things that I feel and sort of agree with you on. And I think it might be something like this. If uh, Christopher Nolan can be criticised as being the sort of rather bloodless um, human heart um, misunderstanding or not understanding mathematician of the film world, then maybe in, in Damien Chazelle we have this really like exacting musical composer of a film director who maybe between those notes doesn't leave enough room for a real a real like humanity and a real human flair. What I'm saying is like, I don't think Christopher Nolan and Damien Chazelle are that different as directors. Mm. I think they do two, two different, um, they're sort of two different sides of the same coin. And I think on both fronts, I tend to come out of the movies thinking, wow, what an immaculate achievement. I just didn't feel as much as I should have felt. And it was the same way I felt about Dunkirk, for example, an astonishing yeah. piece of filmmaking, incredible. Well, look at Interstellar. I mean, there's the, like the, the, set, the set pieces in here do owe a lot. I'd say this, the, what, the other influence we haven't touched on is to some of the um, Nolan set pieces in Interstellar, like the tension and the way they're put together and the, certainly the use of sound on the rocket launches and that kind of thing. That owes, certainly owes a lot to Interstellar. So yeah, actually, yeah, from... Uh, from yeah. a technical point of view, yes. Yeah, you're you're right, I, and I like agree. and like Claire Foy excluded. I mean, Interstellar looks like an absolute emotional, you know, blast to the heart compared to this movie. Even, <laughs> but even given that, for example, one of the best sequences in the movie is when the plugs out test fails because of the way yeah. Chazelle frames that. Like it's it's phenomenally well framed. But the movie still manages to lack like the emotional punch that maybe it could have had. And I know this isn't supposed to just be crowd pleasing, punch you in the gut emotion for the sake of yeah. emotion. I'm fascinated by the space stuff. But like you've intimated, Paul, maybe there wasn't always all of the space stuff that we couldn't have we could have had either. So it can get caught mm. between two posts, perhaps. But enough on first man, I say, because we need to get to the first man on the list of credits for this movie, one Ryan Gosling, and we're going to talk about our top five Ryan Gosling performances after this. Yes, and back we are uh, with our top five Ryan Gosling performances. So we'll start at number five. Um, uh, so this is, as we've mentioned in the beginning, this is top five performances, not necessarily top five films, although there is, for me, certainly probably some crossover here, and I imagine there probably is for you as well, Pete. But, um, so, uh, at number five, um, I have got uh, his performance in the now almost infamous um, tearjerker, The Notebook, Pete. Have you seen this? with Rachel, So he co-stars with Rachel McAdams. Come on, man. Um, of course I've seen The Notebook. What? Of course you've seen The Notebook. Everyone's seen The Notebook. Um, this is um, based on a Nicholas Sparks adaptation. Is it a, it is a Nicholas Sparks novel, isn't it? I'm sure this is based I, on... I believe so. Um, yeah, I think this is. so, And I just think, for I've seen it, I've been, I've unfortunately, sat through a number of Nicholas Sparks adaptations now. Um, and The Notebook is by far the best one. And a lot of that is down to the chemistry between uh, Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams. I think um, certainly both of their performances, not just um, Ryan Gosling here, elevate this from what would have been absolutely near unwatchable, sort of the heart string, far too on the nose uh, whatever other horrible words i can say about a lot of the other nicholas spark adaptations overwrought is the word i'm looking for here i think it elevates it from an overwrought smaltzy mess to actually a remarkably watchable and at times surprisingly emotional film this had knee in tears at the end actually i have to say on the notebook so and i think a lot of that is is down to sort of ryan gosling's character not just i know a lot of women fell in love with him in this film but he adds a 
he adds an element of humanity here. And I think it's interesting we say about his kind of his dialed back or pared down acting style, um, which he can take some criticism for, I think actually works really well here to ground this material and make this film just that little bit more convincing. So, um, yeah, that's for me. Number five is, is Ryan Gosling in the notebook. Uh, Pete, what have you got? Well, um, I'll get to my number five in about 20 seconds. I just want to say that um, for me to sort of explain maybe some of the picks on my list, I feel that the Ryan Gosling career took a sort of turn um, around about uh, like 2013 or something like that. And I don't know if maybe at some point in this discussion, I'll pinpoint exactly the movie where it happened. I think it may have had something to do with uh, by Nicholas Wind and Refn um, that sent <laughs> that sent or marked maybe the, the departure point or the beginning of the departure point for Gosling into something else. And maybe he's going to, you know, reinvent himself again, but we'll see. It was probably the death of cinema, wasn't it, that caused this? Well... Um. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly so, but like after after the departure into later career Gosling, still one of those movies that he has made in the last five years made my list, and that is 2016's The Nice Guys. The reason I like Gosling in this movie is because what I like from Ryan Gosling is the times that the role forces him to show that he's not a bad comedy actor. In fact, at times, quite a good comedy actor. He has quite good comedy timing. He plays really well off Russell Crowe in the movie. Uh, there are sequences like at that cocktail party with the whole sort of falling down the hill and, and being a complete and utter like wreck, that you think like here's an actor who could be doing all of this sort of fulsome like uh, yeah comedic black blackly comic sort of stuff um we don't really get a lot of that from ryan gosling generally speaking and i think that it was a bit of a treat in in 2016 just two years ago two short years ago paul uh, to get the nice guys and obviously this is a shane black joint and you've got that shane black feel to the nice guys and that imbues both characters with a Shane Blackness that I think is hard to fluff unless you're you know very much inferior to someone like Gosling so yeah I, I like but don't love the nice guys but I think it's one of Ryan Gosling's best recent performances if not the best in the last few years so um yeah that's my number five what about number four for you Paul? Uh, number four for me, and I know you're going to disagree with me on this one, uh, is Blade Runner 2049. Um, because if you want a man to play uh, a stoic, robotic-like man, well, who in fact is a, is a replicant in this, a robotic-like man who seems out of his depth to the rest of the world and what's going on in the film around him, who better to cast than Ryan Gosling? Um, yeah, I just thought for me he was perfect casting as the um, Agent K in this, um, as a man just, yeah, as, as a replicant completely out of depth, struggling to come to terms with what was going on around him I think he he's got for me he he plays this again it's his it's his, his part back acting that we've, we've talked about a lot I think it just suits the it suits the robotic role very 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 well here um and I I accept that perhaps to some people it lives left them well, like yourself it leaves you feeling a little bit cold about that character but for me, he was he was perfect casting here. I think not, he, he looked the part. Yeah, I um, mean, I would say, Paul, it's not that it makes me feel cold about that character. It makes me feel a bit cold about the depiction of that character by the actor Ryan Gosling. Because I think that, like, isn't... <laughs> but, but you, I mean, you're a massive fan of Blade Runner. We, we know this. And, and I'm, a, a you know, a fan of Blade Runner. I like it a lot, uh, particularly the, the original movie. But, like... <laughs> The whole notion of, of the Blade Runner franchise to me, and maybe this is just to me, I don't think so, but it could be, is that we're supposed to be in that sort of um, grey area where robotics um, meets humanity. 
Um, and so we're supposed to be constantly questioning what it is to be human and what it is to be replicant and whether it matters whether, I mean, the end of the original play, like, does it matter whether someone is a replicant or a human or whether we'll ever know the answer? And are we like replicants? And what actually makes us human? And would we notice if someone was a replicant amongst humans? But what we get with Gosling, like you say, yeah, he is a replicant and now this is well established, but you're so um, without ambiguity to that fact in the movie because the performance is so sort of flat. It's not robotic in a performed roboticism type way. It's it's robotic <laughs> in a sort of like you've decided to dial this down so low that like the the light inside the computer is sort of flickering and going out. So that that's the issue I have with that movie. I think I protested too much and sorry for yeah. talking about Blade Runner. It's no, not that's my fine. Point. No. No, 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 that's fine. And, and this is the thing. This is what this is why we do the show. But for me, that perform that part down, very, very stripped back performance for me, very much worked for the character. So that's why Blade Runner twenty forty nine is in there. And uh, that jacket he's wearing is incredible in there as well. So that helps. Uh, I true, want that jacket. True. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. mind one of those. <laughs> yeah. um, to- oh, uh, oh, have you got next? Paul, amazing segue. Talking of jackets that you wouldn't mind owning, uh, my number four pick is from two thousand eleven, from the aforementioned Nicholas Winner Refin, and this one is Drive. Uh, he has that scorpion jacket. It looks right cool, doesn't it? Um, yeah, so uh, I don't particularly love the film Drive, although it is very, very cool and knows it's very, very cool. And Nicholas Windham Refn knows he is a very cool and very relevant film director. Um, the movie itself, uh, notwithstanding my criticisms of that, uh, I think that Gosling does very well in this role. I think because, I mean, kind of... Um, a different angle of the same point that we're just discussing there, there, Paul, that like here he is supposed to be a guy whose job requires him to have a sort of laser focus that in the hands of another actor might see him seem, seem to be like an uninteresting person. Whereas by and large, I think Ryan Gosling's character in this movie is interesting enough to, to maintain attention throughout the movie. And I think that unlike the, you know, bathing in his own sense of cool that Winding Refn did in Only God Forgives and Gosling started to do in Only God Forgives where they both high-fived each other till they broke each other's wrists. Uh, <laughs> in this thing, I think that, yeah, it, he trans... It's, it's right on the cusp. It could... I might re-watch it and he might fall down into that canyon of later Gosling that I don't like. But for now, I'm going to say that I really enjoyed the performance in Drive uh, probably more than I did the actual movie. What about number three, Paul? Number three is, uh, this is early, early um, Gosling. Well, not that early Gosling, because he's been acting for years and years and years, but this is probably one of his breakout indie hits, I would say. Uh, this is where he plays the drug addict slash teacher uh, in Half Nelson, um, which I very, very much liked his performance in this. I think that there's um, there's a warmer side to Ryan Gosling in this, which I would agree that we don't really see that much anymore. It's been interesting you've said that. And I think there's a much warmer side to him in Half Nelson as, as he plays this teacher that you really should probably struggle to have, have sympathy for um, because of because of the nature of his character, but you really, really don't. And I think it's a, it's a more human and affecting performance than we, we have grown accustomed to seeing from him. Um, it's not a film I remember all that well. I'll be entirely honest with you. So this this piece on half Nelson won't be that long. Um, oh, well, but it is Paul, certainly. Paul, I can, it's certainly. Well, it's, well, it's the film for me that. Can I just yeah, say go I'm going to join in yeah. just because this was my number two, but I'm going to make it number three, and then and then I'll just carry okay. on talking when you're you're done. Fine. Okay. So yeah, but I think for me, although the the film the film itself is good from memory, I haven't seen it for a number 
of years. But it was the first time for me that um, Ben Gosling, Ben Gosling, I was about to mention Ben Foster, not Ben Gosling. It was a, probably the first time for me that, that you had sort of Ryan Gosling sort of start to establish himself as, as a star. And certainly probably the first time for me that I kind of I looked up and paid attention. I thought, yeah, that guy's going to be that guy's going to be a big star. That guy's going to be really good. Um, help me out. <laughs> yeah. Although I suppose, uh, given that you wept at the end of The Notebook, isn't that two years before Half Nelson came out? But I didn't see the notebook until about oh, three fair, years fair after enough, Half enough. Nelson came out. Yeah, to yeah. Be fair. So yeah, I was very the notebook. I was a latecomer to the notebook, shall we say? So. Right. Um. Yeah. So yeah, I'll move this into number three because it just kind of makes this thing a bit more um slick, I suppose. Um. But yeah, this could be two. It could be three. I think is a really good performance. In um. What? Yeah. What I remember of the movie is obviously yeah he's this drug addict teacher and he's sort of living a double life and it really resonated with me at the time because I started working in education around the same time this movie came out actually um give or take so yeah not that I was a functioning drug addict at the time I, I sort of hasten <laughs> to add but um definitely feeling that um that division that split between how you are at home and how you are at work or like the issues that you might be dealing with in your home life trying to allow trying to prevent them from impacting directly on your teaching uh, and on your your school life I mean that sort of doubling that that double uh, identity thing that we talked about or I talked about in the hate you give uh, last week um, somewhat exists for the Gosling character in this and he forms this friendship with a young female student and it is an entirely platonic um, friendship uh, where he sort of gives her support and kind of goes above and beyond and actually steps out into her community where he is seen as kind of whitey and you know not entirely trusted um, or or thought of in, in yeah, glowing terms now, yeah, yeah uh, and, and I think yeah what, what you get from him is you get this kind of guy who's struggling with his demons but also is sort of an intellectual character at home he's reading up on on conflict and dialectic in history and that sort of thing um, and then he presents again like a face to a classroom which needs to be authoritative and needs to be impassioned and actually is quite he sort of inspires his students whilst falling apart himself and so maybe entirely narcissistically I kind of not, not that I'm saying I inspired my students but was falling apart at the same time, but there's elements of that in experience that, experiences that I was having at that time, I suppose. And so I think the performance is, is well-rounded and I think it's multifaceted and I think that those are things that you can't always say about later Gosling, Paul, yeah. <laughs> which is just my agenda for this, for this countdown. For, so for that reason, I will... Uh, I will just agree with you that the number three Ryan Gosling performance is half Nelson. What have you got at number two? I've got uh, well at number two. I've got Drive, Pete, and I haven't. I can't really say much more than what you've said on it. To be honest, um, it's a very, very. I think as you say, I think for me, this is where the the, the strip back probably Ryan Gosling is uh, that is most effective. I think because the but there's still something quite human about how he falls in love with Carrie Mulligan's character, and that is still that is still convincing. You do he still seems although he's this kind of cold calculated cold calculating well almost like well killing machine essentially towards the end of the film i still think there's something believable in his performance that makes you believe he could fall he is genuinely in love with the carrie mulligan character and would do anything for her and i think that the fact he does that without saying very very much i think is one of the one of the film's strengths as long as as much as it is um, visually very strong film as well so um yeah adding to what you've said i won't say much more than that about drive right and, and there's an important thing isn't there paul that we've see that we see with with actors or actresses where like you've got to buy what they're doing 
Right. Like there's been these criticisms yeah. when you see a particular actor or actress and they're depicting like a brain surgeon and you're like, oh, there's no, there's just no way. Like I'm just not buying it. And so in a movie yeah. like uh, A Place Beyond the Pines, they put Gosling as this like um, uh, motocross riding, tattooed, badass kind of guy. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I'm not really buying it. Like I see it's it's at the fringe it of what he can silly, do. Yeah. But it's, the, film, the film was half decent, but yeah. It's, it's a little bit silly. silly. And, and that movie Sleepless, where the like big bad gun toting like Kingpin was played by Scoop McNary. And you're like, no, no, I love you, Scoop. <laughs> but like you've gone too far whereas Gosling is is bad enough in inverted commas uh, as a screen persona to be a a laser focused driver not if you put him as a a gangland killer no I'm out he's not that if you put him as 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 some sort of um I don't know yeah high-powered cartel figure or something no he isn't that if you put fake tattoos on him and give him a motocross bike maybe not but yeah I think drive is that that perfect sort of middle where he can still be believable in in that role yeah absolutely uh what is your number two then Pete? number two for me Paul is going to be me saying again that this is a better performance than I think it is a movie but it's not terribly bad it is the uh 2011 movie the Ides of March now this was a movie that I don't think got a particularly good reception I don't think anyone really talks about it anymore but it's actually I quite liked it I quite liked it when I remember watching it yeah I enjoyed it It, this is directed uh, and co-written by uh, George Clooney people might have heard of him and on the uh, the poster for the movie there's sort of like a a Clooney character or is it a Gosling character holding up a piece of glass that is then cutting the face in half and on one half we've got Gosling and on the other half we've got Clooney but the reason I put this so high is because because I think it's an area where Gosling can do more good work and is really strong, which is a sort of fast-talking, um, very capable, again, intellectual in a different way, um, at least here functioningly uh, effective in being a, a bit of a wunderkind that he is in, the, in this movie. Um, I like seeing him in these kinds of roles. Like I think about things that Clooney's done before, like Michael Clayton. And I think there would be Mike place for, for a, a Ryan Gosling in a movie of that sort. I want to see more courtroom intrigue, more, uh, you know, uh, corporate shenanigans where Gosling is involved. Whereas what we're seeing is a lot more sort of leading man stuff where I feel like maybe a very capable character actor and sort of indie actor it is perhaps a little bit overstretched, um, but I think in the eyes of March, he's yeah, he's in his in his wheelhouse, and 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 it's a really really good performance. And I think it's a movie that if people go back to it, they'll realise that it should stand close to the top of a Ryan Gosling performances list. Um, so that's my number two. What have you got though, oh, right. Paul? At number I'm one, I'm so confident that we've got the same number one that I think we should we should have a, a bit of fun here, Pete, and say it at the it's same time. It's not fun. I know you're right. Uh, do you, that's how confident. Is, is it a colour volu- uh, followed by a, a sort of day of the year? It is indeed uh, a colour followed by a day of the year. Yeah, like a like a day that you celebrate, right? Is that a day you celebrate? Valentine's well, I've got day. Blue Ruin. Blue Valentine. Why have I put Blue Ruin? I typed Blue Ruin on my notes. That's not even a Ryan Gosling film. The film I'm talking about (laughs) is Blue Valentine. So it's a good job we didn't say Blue Ruin at the same time because that's a completely different film. I would quite quite like, you could make this like a a thing now, like a a Paul go-to that every chart we do, we go, what's your number one? You go, oh, it's Blue Ruin. It doesn't matter. The actor's not in it. It doesn't fit in this category, but it's Blue Ruin because it's a great movie. Let's talk about it some more. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, this, yeah. This so is... our joint number one is Blue Valentine. Yeah, from, from guess, director yeah. Derek Chianfrance. Uh And yeah, tell me, Paul, why on earth is this number one? Because you're absolutely right. It's also mine. 2010 movie with the wonderful, almost peerless Michelle Williams. But why is it a good movie, Paul? And why is it a good performance? It's just I, I've, I don't think I've seen um, Ryan Gosling have better chemistry with anyone on screen than he does with Michelle Williams' character in this film. Um, and just like, oh... I mean, do not. It's not a date film. Do not take a date to see. Um, yeah, my brother did. Blue Valentine. My brother did. He did he? <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Do not take a date to see Blue Valentine. Uh, certainly, don't watch it this week, Pete, in the week before you get married, because you will you come out of it with absolutely no faith in uh, in relationships whatsoever. But it's just. I mean, uh, to be honest, I think the credit needs to go to both Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams in 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 what we talk about here, because it it worked. The film works. Because simply because of the strength of both of their performances here and the and the chemistry they have between them, I just think it's the most it's probably the most grounded and most human uh, I've seen Ryan Gosling in a film um, personally, and I just think yeah, it's a very very powerful performance. I think you can you can really really relate to. I mean, I hope you can't relate to all of the events in this film because I really feel sorry for you if you can. Um, but yeah, you can you can certainly relate to him. He strike he's basically the sort of the ultimate every man in this and you can imagine that any you he, yeah he's it's the most human i've seen him pete well come in help me out here yeah and, and also total shitbag at certain times but i mean i guess we all are yes um well again yeah. the most human i've ever seen him so yeah yeah I, I think that's it i think it brings together so many elements and many of those that we've sort of touched on already talking about this guy because you've got like the the charming guy and god by god when he turns it on he is charming i mean all of those internet yeah. memes and stuff don't come from nowhere and <laughs> yeah. and the stuff where he's playing the ukulele and kind of uh wooing williams character early in the movie you think of uh stuff like crazy sexy love where like a kind of fairly three-star forgettable movie is elevated by well steve carell but particularly the interactions that carell's character has with this incredibly yes. charming charismatic guy so you've got that but then you've also got the the vulnerability of um, a Gosling character what he can bring in terms of making you feel like this guy could possibly break and and err and make mistakes then you've got like the kind of withdrawn but withdrawn because that benefits the plot the fact that he's withdrawn here is one of the things that creates so much friction with Michelle Williams character when she's saying to him like where is your ambition that sequence that takes place probably my favorite scene in the film where they're in the kitchen yes. and he's working as a throughout he's working as a furniture delivery guy and she's like well where what do you want to do like what's your ambition and he his retort is like incredulity he's like ambition for what to do what like what are we aiming at here i don't understand what you want from me what you're trying to pull out from me because maybe it's not there and maybe it never has been and maybe you you've just realized that the person that you think is all the things you've dreamed of is actually not all of those things and maybe you've put too much on me and that speaks to an honesty I think about relationships that is to the movie's credit like yeah it's really downbeat and yeah some of it is hard to watch and horrible and yeah maybe even melodramatic compared to the course of a, a regular relationship but it it can I think not be accused of being a dishonest movie and I think no, his absolutely. performance as well as you've sort of touched on Paul I think his performance is is rounded and human in a way that well that's the thing like you say that, like, he is an utter shit at times in the in times in the film uh, like everyone no one can say they've ever been a perfect human being no, no one um, and I think that's that's what he really brings to the table here is just is for me it's his, certainly his most convincing performance um, as just a, as I say a well-rounded individual as just a rounded individual and I think that's what makes the film work is it is although as you say you know you, you would hope that 
you would certainly hope that most relationships don't go through this melodrama. If you if you take five or six relationships and put those all together, you could quite easily find this level of melodrama. So yeah, I think it makes the film all the more convincing. And, and it's interesting that a movie that I've mentioned a few times on our show, um, Broken Circle Breakdown, does a similar thing to what Derek Chamfrance does here with like cross-cutting between times. So you can have like a scene that seems really sweet and then it can be intercut with a different time at which things were terrible or vice versa. And it can be a very effective piece of sort of methodology for filmmaking as long as it is the right side of not just feeling totally manipulative and I think that Blue Valentine sort of ex uh, succeeds in, in that regard. So like Paul we've mainly agreed I think on the idea that maybe there was some better things about Ryan Gosling that have been turned down a little bit for the yeah. benefit maybe of his I mean it's, it's churlish maybe it's his bank balance I mean he good luck to him he should make all the money that he possibly can um, but maybe for bigger roles and more um, exposure and m like leading man stuff that is of a I think he's kind of he's almost seen as a safe pair of hands because he's he's still probably one of the one of the the, the big heartthrobs um, and I think he's kind of seen as a safe pair of hands where people go okay put Gosling in it the, like people will go because he's good looking and also he's a right actor isn't he like people seem to like him from his earlier indie days well, um, yeah, and, and I think and that is possibly hampering some better sort of limiting limiting his option to play of slightly more rounded characters yeah and I, and I think it, I hate to say it because I think both of us sort of um, feel a little bit queasy when we talk about things like you know target demographics for uh, marketing yeah. campaigns and stuff for movies but like Gosling ticks you know that they're crunching these numbers and Gosling ticks a number of demographics because something like The Notebook isn't going to stop being a thing and isn't going to stop having a massive fan base not only female but I would imagine uh, predominantly or, or majority female or at least a lot of female fans came to Gosling fandom yeah. through that movie but then on the other yeah. end Paul you've got the amount of sort of diehard let's say predominantly male fans who come to Gosling through something like Drive and he developed like an impenetrable bulletproof cool about himself yeah. for playing that role and, and the other one of course only god forgives with uh winning reffin so like he's established his credentials across a number of different demos and i think that that like you say leads to casting directors thinking gosling is gonna be you know bank he's, yeah. he's gonna gonna yeah. make us money yeah absolutely so yeah it'd be interesting to see him perhaps approach some a slightly more smaller indie projects and see where he goes from there i think in future and and currently but, um, paul nothing uh in terms of on imdb anyway nothing in terms of upcoming gosling projects unless you know okay. of something there's nothing that jumps out at me no um there will be some but <laughs> well i don't yeah i don't reckon he's gonna struggle for work he maybe he's just having a rest no, well, that's pretty much it for this week then, isn't it, Pete? So um, the next time we speak, well, no, the next time we speak, you won't be married because I'm seeing you on Friday. Um, the next time we do a show, you are like, very likely to be married. Um, so that's <laughs> very, likely. very exciting. Very likely. Very likely, yeah, I would hope so. <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, yeah so you, well the next time we do a show you will be married Pete there we go um, when are we doing the next show Pete are we back next week are you um, away what are you doing are it, you, honey, are from you my, mini honeymoon mini mooning yeah so from <laughs> from my side there I I will be available Monday and Tuesday of next week so like we could well do a record Monday or Tuesday of next week before I go away um, and then I will be away for. Will we have seen anything though? Probably like, like not. A few days. We won't have seen. We won't have seen anything at the cinema because we will have spent the whole weekend together. <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, by that point, I hope to have at least seen 
uh, Apostle, which I sort of stopped you talking about on the proviso yes. that I would watch it. So I will have seen that. So, so we'll see where we see we'll see we'll see where we go. We'll play um, it by ear, and then we'll we'll yeah. update through channels that exist on the internet yeah. to tell people what's going on. But until then, please do get in contact and wish me luck with my future uh, marital bliss. Uh, and and more importantly, to tell us what we said that was right and what we said that was horribly horribly wrong on this show and why you're so angry about it. We're uh, contactable through Facebook. We're contactable through Instagram. We also have an email. Just basically uh, search for strangers in a cinema. Yeah, strangers in a cinema at gmail.com. Throw emails our way and we will ignore them for a while and then we will respond. Um, <laughs> and apart from that, I think we're done for this week. Paul, anything? any yes. final words? No, uh, I'll see you on Friday. <laughs> Lovely stuff. All right, bye-bye. Shut up and sit down.